Amen. In the movie, The Devil Wears Prada, Anne Hathaway plays a character named Andy. She's this aspiring young journalist who wants to write serious stories. And she happens to become the personal assistant for Meryl Streep's character called Miranda Priestley. And she is uh, the editor of a high-powered fashion magazine. Now, Andy is really not interested in fashion at all, but she thought Miranda Priestley being such a powerful woman in, in the journalistic world, even if it's the fashion part of it, she figured it would open a bunch of doors, so she takes this position. And uh, it's very, it's very, it's a great movie if you haven't seen it, and Meryl Streep does an incredible job playing this character, Miranda Priestly. It's based on, Miranda Priestly, uh, that character is based on real-life Vogue editor Anna Wintour, who's also known to be tough, but very powerful in the fashion industry, very powerful in New York City. And uh, Meryl Streep's character, uh, she plays it so well. She's just frequently burning the people around her just with her no-nonsense kind of comments, harsh, really indifferent to the people around her. My favorite line that she says throughout the movie when she's done with someone, even if they're talking, she's like, no, that's all, and just dismisses them. And so Andy's in this uh, styling meeting for the first time, and she's just supposed to be quiet and take notes. And uh, Meryl Streep's character, Miranda Priestly, is, you know, figuring out how to style a particular um, edition of the magazine. And she has other magazine employees helping her figure out what should we put with this dress. Or, and then this, this, um, this, this scene happens, which if you've seen the movie, you would know it well. One of the assistants brings up two belts to us fashion layman would look like exactly the same belts. And Miranda, you know, uh, no, Miranda's assistant says, oh no, I know it's so difficult to choose. They, they're so different. And Andy chuckles underneath her breath. And Miranda hears that. And Miranda says, something funny? And he says, no, no, nothing, you know. It's just that both of those belts look exactly the same. And I'm still learning about all this stuff. And, and Miranda cuts her off. This stuff. Oh, okay. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater you're wearing, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you're, that you're t- taking yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a series of cerulean ball gowns. And then it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets. I think we need a jacket here. You know, she's still styling. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it filtered on down through the department stores and then trickled on down to some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of jobs, countless jobs, and it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing the sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Andy Crouch in his book, Culture Making, comments that the Christian's, Christian's posture to culture is too often either to condemn from a distance, 
engage by critiquing, consume undiscerningly, or copy, and this is the word that I add, copy and Christianize. Condemn, critique, consume, or copy. And he makes a point to differentiate gesture and posture. Gesture, are, any one of those things are fine responses to particular situations. But a gesture, a posture is when a Christian primarily responds to the culture in that way. Primarily responds by condemning, primarily responds by critiquing, primarily responds by consuming or copying. And I think it is interesting that like Anne Hathaway's character, Christians can think fashion or beauty or aesthetics have nothing to do with being Christian. No matter how much lip service we give to God being creative and we being made in his image are also creative, that we can still think of those things functionally as even anti-Christian. Oh, fashion, that's, that's not something that Christians should really be concerned with that much. Like Anne Hathaway's character, Christians can also functionally, philosophically think, functionally or philosophically think culture has nothing to do with us. So when Christians largely condemn or critique, we say culture is just outside of us and something that we condemn or critique from the outside. Or when Christians largely consume or copy culture, then also we just say it is so neutral and so safe that we don't have to be concerned with it in any way. And therefore, we don't have to pay much attention to its effects. It has nothing to do with us in that sense. Today we're going to talk about this main point. Jesus reconciles all things to himself, so let's participate in his reconciliation work. Jesus reconciles all things to himself, so let's participate in his reconciliation work. I think here's the problem for for many Christians, is that we we hyper-focus on individual sins. It could be our, our own individual sins, or it could be other people's individual sins. And because we focus so much on individual sins, that we neglect, neglect the deeper sins that lie underneath the individual sins. We neglect the institutional sin, the systemic sin, the structural sins that exist around us. What I mean by that is the the sin patterns that are baked into our institutions. When I say institutions, I mean our families, our schools, our communities, our companies, our industries, our countries, our humanity, that there is a deeper pattern of sin baked into all of those different kinds of institutions. Amy Sherman in her book Kingdom Calling says this about vocation specifically, but she says this, a vital part of vocational stewardship for the common good is a focus by believers on transforming the institutions in which they work. Now she's talking about our jobs, our work, our vocations, but really that idea can be applied, again, to any institution that we are involved in. And we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end, specifically applications, but we'll Again, we're going to investigate what does it mean for us to participate in Jesus reconciling all things to himself. Jesus is concerned not just with reconciling God with broken humanity, but reconciling God with a broken creation and culture. 
So a little bit of setup as we look at this passage in First Colossians 1. And it's this very famous passage that, as Krista read, she read the heading, it, it shows the preeminence of Christ, or other titles have been given, it shows the supremacy of Christ, and specifically over two areas, 15 through 18 show the, uh, 15 through 17 show the supremacy over creation, and then 18 through 20 show the supremacy over the church. So we see, for instance, I'll just read a few verses here. Verse 16 says, For by him, by Christ, all things were created. He is the creator. Later on, it says, All things were created through him and for him. So not only is he the creator, but he is the purpose for which all things are created. And 17 goes on to say, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only did he create all things, not only is he the purpose for which all things are created. He himself sustains all of creation. This verse, for instance, would contradict people who think in a deist kind of way that thinks God created everything, stepped back, like a, just wound up this grandfather clock and just let the world run. This verse says, no, God is very much involved in sustaining all of creation. So we see supreme over creation for all these different reasons. Verse 18 through 20 show that he is supreme over the church, over redeemed humanity. Describes in verse 18 as he being the head of the body. And we see this throughout scripture, Christ being described as the head of the church. And it goes on to say that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, showing that he is the one who died and then raised from life. That he is the firstborn over the dead, meaning he has power over death. And then again, it says, so that in everything he might be preeminent. And then the verse goes on to say, the fullness of God dwells in him, and through him all things are reconciled to himself. And we'll talk a little bit about that in more detail. But again, I want you to see that out the ground for which Jesus said, uh, Paul says that Christ is redeeming, reconciling all things to himself starts at this place, that he is supreme over everything, over all of creation, over all of the church. And the language is used, again, specifically that he is the firstborn over creation. He is preeminent over all creation. He is firstborn over that. He is supreme as the head of redeemed humanity. So Jesus is engaging in this reconciliation work in this world. That he is wanting to redeem not just, again, humanity, but all of creation. And as we heard recently leading up to Easter, Jesus said, in order to rebuke the Pharisees who were telling Jesus to tell his disciples to shut up, essentially, when they were praising him as he entered into Jerusalem, Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. All of creation, not just humans, are groaning to cry out praise to the God who has made him. And that includes the culture which humans have made um, in this world. Now, Paul makes a turn. We didn't read this verse, but Paul makes a turn after this to point us back to the gospel, to point his readers back to the gospel. He says, um, after this, this, what is like a hymn-like confession in verses 15 through 20, he says this, and he reminds Christians in verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. 
So the ground for Christ's reconciling work of all of humanity and creation is him being supreme over everything. But the ground for God's call upon our lives as Christians is the gospel. And we have to remember that as our starting point. It is Christ's sacrificial work on the cross, which reminds us our starting point in our lives is God's love for us. It is our foundation for which we live our lives, knowing that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven by God on the cross. And it is by faith in Christ's sacrifice and resurrection from the dead that we can have hope and even confidence that we can stand before God and God sees us as perfectly righteous. I will never tire of saying that because so often we live our lives with a conscious or subconscious sense of guilt and shame. And sometimes it's because there's sin in our lives. And sometimes we may have repented of those sins and yet we have still further to go in understanding how we stand without blemish, free from accusation before God. Consider these words, without blemish and free from accusation. We are without blemish and free from accusation before the infinite, holy God. That should be shocking. Like we can barely stand in front of people we know, our spouse, our parents, our boyfriend, girlfriend, best friend. We can barely stand before these finite, fellow broken people without feeling like at any moment we might be exposed for some blemish, for some thing we've done wrong. And I don't mean a blemish like a pimple that we can cover up with makeup or a pimple that we can just pop and get rid of. I mean a blemish in action that affects the people around us. A blemish in our characters that affect the people around us over and over again. And when we feel like those blemishes have been exposed, we are so quick to defend ourselves, so quick to defend, to rationalize, to justify, to give reason for why we we did such a thing. That defensiveness kicks in like second nature for us. We show that there is still so much sense of guilt and shame that we live under. Now try to imagine, because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we can stand not only before fellow human beings, but before God, knowing that we are considered holy, without blemish, free from accusation. It's just simply shocking to know that that's the truth. That doesn't mean we don't recognize what's wrong in our life. It doesn't mean we don't repent of the things we do that's wrong in our life. But what we do know is those things cannot be held against us anymore because Christ has paid for the price of all that we have done wrong. And he says, I see you, and I see you as without blemish, free from accusation. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are free. And we are free to then be a part of his work in this world. When we experience God's unconditional love through the cross, when we experience the freedom of being able to stand before God himself, free from accusation, without blemish, then we are empowered to live for God and for his glory. 
we can be a part of Jesus reconciling all things to himself. I mean, it changes completely the orientation of our life. It changes what is the priorities in our life, this gospel that changes everything. And again, it leads us back to this, really this verse that I wanted to focus on today. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus reconciles all things to himself, so let's participate in his reconciliation work. When we think of the ministry of reconciliation, perhaps the verse, the first place we would think of in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5, a very well-known section in scripture that says this, I'll read it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, rightly so, in these verses, the truth and the command that we have is that since we are reconciled in our relationship to God, we should also implore others to be reconciled to God, to point them to Christ, to point them to this gospel that we have believed in that has given us hope and freedom. So we are definitely called to engage in this ministry of reconciliation, to share the good news of Christ to others around us. But as we talked about last week, we also have to make sense of the original purpose in which God gave all of humanity to create and cultivate culture and community for God's glory. That is still deeply woven into our design as human beings. That we are moving, that God is moving history and humanity from the Garden of Eden to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down from heaven. So our faith in Christ can't just be fire insurance. You've heard this probably said many a times. Our faith must work out in our lives in real ways. It must bear fruit in order for it to have credibility to those around us who are still searching. And when we think about working out our faith in our lives, not just treating it as fire insurance. I think we often focus on how the gospel transforms Christians through personal ethics, right? Making right individual choices. We can focus on personal enrichment in our relationship with God. We can focus on personal evangelism with the people that we know. We can focus on the personal experience with God in terms of figuring out the, the purpose and meaning in which God has given us. So Ethics, enrichment, evangelism, and experience. All ways in which we can work out our faith in our lives in real ways. And those are all good things. And if you are doing those things, please continue to do those things. 
helps move Christians towards greater integrity in their faith and in their witness of God. But here's the but. That if our focus is solely on the individual and personal expressions, then as Christians we won't focus enough on God's call for us to be God's agents in redeeming things in this world, in his creation, in this culture. To be a part of changing the culture of the institutions in which we are a part of. And the church, particularly reformed churches, should get this more than anyone else. We should be the first to realize that systemic, institutional, structural, whatever word you want to use, those kinds of sins are realities in this world. We should get that as reformed folk because we believe in this thing called total depravity. And total depravity doesn't mean we are as bad as we can be. Total depravity means all of our faculties are broken and require God's change and redemption. Our minds, our wills, our emotions... All of our faculties are broken and need God's redemption. And if we believe that to be true, then it's certainly obvious step to take that our institutions are also broken. That the collective decisions of humans to create institutions and cultures are also affected by sin and cannot simply be changed by one person doing something different personally. That it requires a cultural change in that institution. And this happens in organizations and institutions of all sizes. So we think of church as an organization. There's going to be institutional sin in a little church like One Ancient Hope. And there's going to be institutional sin in a very large church like the Catholic Church. Both are true. It's the nature of brokenness in this world. And the institutions, as I mentioned again, are across the board in our society. It's our families, it's our churches, it's our schools, it's our, our industries, our work, our politics, even our hobbies can have institutional sin involved in it. And all of those institution, God says, I want to reconcile all things to myself. I want to redeem those things for God's glory. I want you to imagine any one of those institutions. I don't know which one jumps to mind for you. But just begin to imagine what would that institution be like if it was in the perfect kingdom of God? What would my work look like if it existed in the sinless kingdom of God? What would my schools look like if it existed in the kingdom of God? That's the question we're asking. What is the cultural change in those institutions that God calls us to be a part of redeeming and reconciling to Christ? In each of those institutions, there are, again, patterns of sins, or you want to call them idols, that may be particular to those institutions. So how can we work against those patterns or work against those idols and at the same time seek mutual flourishing, seek common good with others who may not share the same belief that we do and do so through the countercultural gospel and through the kingdom values that we have through faith in God, through scripture that has been revealed to us. 
James Davison Hunter says this in his book, To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. Anyway, he says this. The church, as it exists within the wide range of individual vocations in every sphere of social life, commerce, philanthropy, education, etc., must be present in the world in ways that work towards the constructive subversion of all frameworks of social life that are incompatible with the shalom for which we were made and to which we are called. As a natural expression of its passion to honor God in all things and love our neighbors as ourselves, the church and its people will challenge all structures that dishonor God, dehumanize people, and neglect or do harm to the creation. God's call upon us to live out the kingdom of God is so great, so broad, so inspiring. He's not just concerned with saving our souls, but redeeming all of creation. Let's talk a little bit application to kind of give some flesh and some meat to what this means. Think about family, for instance. Maybe it's a smaller, more tangible thing. And I don't know if you've experienced this. I know that I have in my own life. When you begin to take your Christian life seriously and you begin to identify patterns in your own family, patterns of sin in your family, it may be something as obvious as alcoholism or it could be something more subtle, pridefulness in a certain kind of work. Oh, we're a family of doctors. That's what we do. When you begin as a Christian to take seriously those patterns, idols you see in your family, you begin to say, I, I don't want to be like that. I want to live for something different. I want to live for the gospel. I want to live for God. You begin to feel like, oh, I'm a bit of a black sheep in my family. Like everyone else seems to be working on the same page, and I feel like I'm working against it. Now, it's easy, particularly as our family, right? We get really invested in family. We can just be like, oh, like, I don't want to be like you guys anymore. Maybe you just literally like disown your family and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to hang out with you. Or maybe it's just kind of a subtle like digs at your family, like, oh, you guys are such alcoholics. <laughs> Not a very Christian thing to say, obviously. So, but what does it look like when you exist in those families and you see patterns of sin that exist, has existed through generations even in your family, and you begin to say, I want to be a part of seeing redemption happen in my family. Not just by necessarily sharing the gospel, which obviously is a great thing, but about beginning to address problems in the family in a way of communicating, say, hey, this is all for our good if we do this and try to do this together. I think it'll be healthy for our family. I think it'll be life-giving for our family if we started communicating in this way instead of the way that we've been communicating. To propose those kinds of solutions that are winsome and for the good of all. Think about the schools that your kids attend. Right? It's obvious there's brokenness in education. We've seen all the strikes recently for teachers to get fair pay. But what does it mean for us to look at our schools and say, how can we get involved in such a way to see these institutions thrive, to see the children in these schools flourish in their education? How can we get involved, whether it's on the PTO or community meetings that the school district is putting on, to fight not just for our own children, 
but to be a voice for the children in those schools to see, again, common good, mutual flourishing happen, to find creative and compassionate solutions that feel like win-win situations. Win-win situations are difficult because it's not always a win-win. There's often a sacrifice that's needed. But even when a sacrifice is needed, whether it's on a family level or education school level, how can we ask people to sacrifice in a way to honor the sacrifice they're making rather than shame them into those kind of sacrifices? Let's think about work. I've, I've talked with a couple of people recently who work in food services, and, and they talk about, ah, oh, there can be so much drama in food services, like people not getting along, and, and it's just frustrating to go through that again and again and again. Well, it's not that surprising, people working together, that there'll be drama, right? And you, I think whatever industry you're in, you can probably see that on some level. So what does it mean, even if you're like a food service person where you might think, I don't, it's not like I'm a business owner. It's not like I get to make decisions to change the way things are run. How do you as a, let's say, person who works on the grill at McDonald's, how can you be a part of redeeming culture within your world of McDonald's to be a voice for, hey, I see that when new people come in to this workplace, that often that creates a lot of tension between the old workers and the new workers. To talk with your management about, hey, what? Uh, here's an idea that I have. I don't know if it's any good, but I think this might work. Right? To, to give voice to possible solutions that change the institution, that redeem the way things work in that institution. Tim Keller says in his book, Every Good Endeavor, to be a Christian in business then means much more than just being honest or not sleeping with your coworkers. It even means more than personal evangelism or holding a Bible study at the office. Rather, it means thinking out the implications of the gospel worldview and God's purposes for your whole work life and for the whole of the organization under your influence. I think often we are just overwhelmed at work or with our schools or with our whatever institutions we're involved in. And sometimes it's, there's just a lack of imagination or lack of sense that God calls us into those things to bring the life of the gospel to it. That we can do so in a way that's not just confrontive, in a way that's just shaking our fists at the sins of the world, but in a way that brings, again, mutual flourishing and common good to all that are involved in that institution. Sometimes we're just committed to not rocking the boat. We don't want to be the person who gives voice to something needs to change in an organization, in an institution. And how do we express the goodness of the faith that we believe in, the God that we believe in, the kingdom that is breaking into this world? We don't get voice to the kinds of reconciling and redeeming work that God cares about. Let's not be afraid to act on our imagination in these ways. Imagine what would the kingdom of God look like in this particular institution? What are the 
win-win situations that be, can be created in those institutions. A change that can be for the glory of God, that can be for the, the good of the common good and the good of the organization's bottom line, whatever that bottom line may be. You've heard us, me, you've heard me talk about Hope for Johnson County a little bit. Hope for Johnson County is one example of that. It's, it's a hope that it can be a win-win-win situation and that it will bring glory to God and the church. One win. <laughs> that it will meet the needs of the city and the county. Another win, hopefully. And that it will bless the churches in this area for opportunities to serve. That's, a very, that's the positive side of it, but behind that is to say we recognize there's structural sin in the church because we refuse to step into the brokenness of this world. There's systemic issues in the county and cities such that the government is, for whatever reason, unable to provide the services that this community needs. That there's brokenness in the church. There's brokenness on the government level, and there's just brokenness, needs all around that need to be met. How can we as Christians step into those needs? One thing that I've talked about, I think, off and on, and that I'm going to take action with this week is I really do think that for us as a church to begin what I call vocational groups would be really life-giving. So grouping together people, who are, let's say, in law, in medicine, in research, in, in um, whatever field it may be, in academics, in, in, in um, service work, to group together people to say, hey, what, what is our industry like? What, is our, what are our companies like? What, what are the things that share in common? How can we bring change in these areas? How can we encourage one another as we fight those particular idols and sins? And so I'm going to send out a survey this week. I'm going to ask you, what is your vocation? I'm going to ask you some other questions related to that. What are the struggles in those vocations? I'm going to ask you if you're going to be willing to facilitate a monthly group to talk about these things, to encourage one another, to live out what I've been talking about in this message. I just want to end with this thought. Perhaps you have aspirations to be the next Oscar de la Renta. Perhaps you have aspirations to be the next Anna Wintour. If you do, awesome. Go for it. Do so for the glory of God, seeking to redeem God's creation and this culture with your kingdom values. Bring your faith in Christ with all of its love and compassion and kingdom-transforming power to those areas. God desires to do that through you. Jesus is a God who reconciles all things to himself. So let's be a part of his reconciliation work. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.